0: We'll <music> and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And hopefully when I get some emails confirming the case, I will be able to add iHeartRadio and Spotify to that list of where you'll be able to access this podcast. I know randomly they've come up, a couple episodes have in in a couple places, but now I want to get it regularly streaming to those platforms as well. So welcome to the show. As you can see, this week, I am welcoming back my favorite guest, John Atak. Hey, John, welcome to the
1: show. Hey, Chris. Always a pleasure to be here. How many is this now? It's about 150 shows. (laughs)
0: Something something like that. Exactly. We've done quite a few. I actually have a whole playlist of you (laughs) on my channel. Yeah, and uh, you and Rachel Bernstein have both been graced with indiv- the only ones with individual playlists on my channel. and
1: I'm privileged. Thank yes, you.
0: yes, very happy. Well, happy to have you here. How's it going out there?
1: Pretty good. It's been a bit too hot, really, but, uh, you know, then really? the humidity is a bit high here in, in the United Kingdom. But um, and otherwise, we're, we're doing well, and, uh, and I believe we're doing rather better with the COVID-19 than the United States is at the moment, which I'm very sorry about.
0: Yeah, although I'm hearing, uh, seeing that we are seeing an increase in Spain, France, uh, Netherlands, apparently reporting a bit of a, a beginning of a second, what looks to be a second curve. Um, you know, as opposed to the United States, which arguably hasn't gotten out of its first one. It's, it's. Uh, I, I haven't seen the overall you know, plotted graphs for the U.S., but I understand we're still uh, in the thick of it, and we are. Oh, Australia also is apparently on lockdown. Uh,
1: There's there's a little bit of lockdown um, in Australia, but not not the whole of Australia. Yeah, Um, not the whole place. Yeah, bits and pieces of Spain. We've got three towns in lockdown, but the big surprise was Leicester, which is just up the road from me, Mm. And they went into lockdown with a lot of cases. And I sort of went, well, that's because of the rag trade. You know, the clothes industry is centered in Leicester. And to our horror, we find that it's, that there are perhaps 13,000 slaves who have been imported from South Asia, where, of course, in India, they have 13 million slaves, according to the United Nations. Wow. Out of the 35 million in the world, the majority are in India. So they're just people who have been imported in here and put into sweatshops. And uh, hopefully something will happen about that because uh, slavery is the worst of all evils and uh, we shouldn't be doing that in the modern world at all.
0: No, I I definitely agree with that. Um, Wow. Wow. Well, you know, may you live in interesting times. I guess we've all sort of... uh... Are living that curse now. It's interesting how you how you realize when the day you realize that you know your life is now part of of an actual history book where you thought you know maybe you're going to go along and interesting things will happen during your life, but you won't really be living in quote unquote interesting times, right? which you know are going to be slotted for some degree of discussion in history books from here on out. I mean, in the same way, the 1918 epidemic, I mean, that's just always going to be there. That's always a piece of history. There it is. Uh, the world wars, they're always going to be there. They're just too significant to, to leave by. This COVID-19 worldwide epidemic is clearly one of those, those things. It's touched every single country in the world.
1: And yet, um, Fukuyama said that we had reached the end of history. Yeah. After the <laughs> War came and yet he keeps on coming. Had, more had, and more history every day. Oddly. Ban it. <laughs> Stop it. Protest against it. No more history. We've had enough. Yes,
0: yeah, so I want no more history. No more history. Of course, uh, we can't really have too much uh, present without without history. So it doesn't really work out so and, well.
1: And I think that the, the times you've lived through have been astonishing. You know, from the end of the 20th century through the 21st century, that such things as the genome project, Mm -hmm. which admittedly didn't fulfill the promises we'd hoped for it. We thought it was going to cure everything, and I think there are four diseases that it cured so far. But um, it nonetheless gave us a a tremendous new understanding, the the mapping of the brain that is gradually happening. I mean, I've been reading books since, I I think I read uh, Oliver Sacks, Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat in 1984, when it's being said we've learned more about the brain in the last 10 years and every decade this one's now being trotted out and we are gradually starting to find something out at least um but you know our essential subject today the, the subject of authoritarianism which, which is has become central to me I, I used to talk about cult groups i now talk about authoritarian groups because what's wrong with the cult group is it's authoritarian it has people in it who believe that the leader should be followed And it has leaders who believe they should be followed. And it does away with consensus in the democratic process. But it also does away with good sense and science along the way. And uh, puts us in a very dangerous situation where in the world today, we have so many leaders who are authoritarians. They're people who are narcissistic, who believe that their word should be law um, and are dictating our futures for us. I'm not just talking about the Don here. I am talking about people like um, Scott Morrison or Scummo as the Australians call him. <laughs> They're very affectionate people, the Australians. Um, Duterte, what a wonderful man. Uh, my only crime is the extrajudicial killings. And I quote exactly. It's just that I've murdered people. Why are people getting mad about that? Uh, Abe, um, Shinsu Abe, Modi in India. Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Putin, Xi, and of course, Mr. Kim. That All of these people who are basically idolized and worshipped by a small amount of people as if they were gods on earth. And as I said in our prelude, when we were thinking about what to talk about, if you trace that history right back to Sumeria in about 3,500 BC, you have this idea that the gods give power to the king, and the king then emanates this power outwards. We find it with the pharaohs. We find it in China with the emperors in India. And the divine right of kings, as it was called in the 17th century in Britain, where a um, you know, king, Charles I, stood up against parliament because God had appointed him. And it's, a, it's one of the letters in Romans that the nasty family in the US, the fellowship, used to say that, Basically, God appoints the leaders and you have to do as you're told. So if you're a Christian in in Russia before 1953, if Stalin told you to do something, God had appointed him according to this scripture. This wild idea that there's some kind of authority that descends from the heavens and is imbued through these people who then get to boss us around and do, let's face it, some of the most stupid things ever. You know, you, you just no doubt. Take- one of them kings queens presidents they do crazy things and it's allowed it's accepted and we need to move forward a bit more so that we are more pro social more pro human more humanistic in our in our, our ways not just saying well the pope said it so it must be true he's infallible isn't he
0: well i tell you it's a difficult uh situation because that Model, I guess you could say, at a macro scale, with governments, authoritarian systems of of governing large, you know, swaths or large groups of people, has also worked down its way down to, or maybe it's, maybe it was the other way around at first. Who knows? However, it, however, it, it it evolved in the roots of history. We also now have the microcosm of that with the evangelical model of the um, of God or Jesus. And there is this umbrella of protection. This is a literal diagram of of God, and then there's this umbrella that protect and then the father of the family, the family unit now, is in this position of being ordained and, and empowered by God directly. to be the leader of the family, his his word, he is the final decider, He is the arbiter, He is the one who decides the course and direction and conduct of the family. And it is the wife who is the homemaker and, and, uh, and, you know, junior to him. Very, very clear in any structural, you know, representation of this, um, diagram of this, that the wife and then the kids are under the father and his authority. And, um, and that his authority for the head of the family, head of household, comes from God. And that is, the, that is a very, very core belief um, of a lot of Americans. I won't say the majority of Americans because I don't know that's true. But I do know mm-hmm. that, the, that the majority of Christians um, are evangelical and evangelicals, you know, have different flavors of this patriarchal system, I guess you could call it. It uh, certainly has been called that, cor- correctly so. Um, this very old, very, very old system, and this wasn't originated in the United States, but, it's, um, but it is exact parallel to this government problem we're, we're talking about. Now, I happen to think, and I, this is why I wanted to discuss this topic with you, because the nuance that enters in on this is it, it can get pretty deep. And when you start examining the ins and outs and peculiarities, for example, of foreign affairs and how governments manage foreign affairs or foreign relations, you quickly learn that the problems that they are solving go far beyond the individual microcosm problems that an individual or an individual family would be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important when we talk about governments to make this differentiation. Otherwise, I think we might fall into the same kind of fallacious thinking of you know well i can balance my checkbook how come the government can't
1: yeah as margaret thatcher put it when she was prime minister right
0: and that well that's margaret thatcher being either purposefully or ignorantly disingenuous but she certainly would have known that government purses are run a little differently than the way your mom's purse is run you know <laughs> the, uh, the the leveraging of what's that
1: Borrow from your great great grandchildren to run a government,
0: (laughs) right? Because well, because government economics are very different. You know, leveraging of debt. uh, The you know they can create currency that you can't do that in your house. You know, I mean there are there are there are significant differences between a government's economic system and a family household system. And in the same way, there are significant differences between the interests of a nation and. Um, and I, I don't want to try to make this all about foreign affairs, but this is how I was sort of introduced to this line of thinking of like having to think about this and go, well, wait a second. There's a little bit more to this than simply he's a narcissist and so, Mr., you know, he's a bad man. And I'm not talking about Trump right now. You listed out a whole array of people we could be talking about. I'm not, I'm not being specific about anybody here when I say that, you know, yeah, the guys there's a narcissist in charge. Shit. That sucks, but it sucks because of different reasons than it would suck as head of household or being in an intimate relationship with said narcissist where the dynamics are a little different. You know, they don't, they don't scale exactly the same way. And I thought that might be something we might wanna discuss, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me pick up on, on the other idea of the narcissist. Sure. Um, we tend to use the word to mean somebody who has the narcissistic personality disorder, someone who is a malignant narcissist or dangerous narcissist. Yep. That concept was invented by Eric Fromm. Mm-hmm. Um, You've discussed
0: 19- this on your, on your channel.
1: Yeah, uh, in a book called The Heart of Man. And what's fascinated me in, in reading his work is that he is talking about two kinds of narcissism, one of which we don't we talk about. There's a malignant narcissist. They make up a pretty small percentage of people. They um, are dangerous to us all. They're predatory. Uh, Donald Trump has said there are predators and prey. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all there are. I would say that, that that's a wrong model of society. There are predators, there are prey. There are also non predators and non prey. Yep. And I seek to be neither a predator nor prey. You know, that, that's my, my objective in life. It's very hard with governments as they are not to be prey. But the malignant narcissists make up a very small quantity. Fromm doesn't quite join all of the dots in his own thinking, I don't think, because when he started writing in 1941 with Escape from Freedom, he said the problem in society is that the majority of people do not develop a self. They have a pseudo-self. And he says the problem with Freud's idea of the narcissist, and Freud introduced the idea of psychology, is that he thinks it's incurable that we're all narcissists. We either have primary or secondary narcissism. So if you pay for three 50-minute hours per week for five years, which is quite expensive, you can hope to develop from being a primary narcissist to being a secondary narcissist. That's as good as you can get. Fromm says not so. Freud's idea is the narcissist only loves himself or herself, from says, no, the narcissist is somebody who does not know how to love. And I think that is a foundational idea. So he would say that about 60% of people never develop a self. They have a pseudo self. They want to know what other people think about them. They buy a new car so that the neighbours will, will think they've got something. Everything is an exhibition. Everything is a way of saying, yeah, I am all right, really, because there is no contentment with the self, there is no, hey, I'm okay, it's fine, which is a state I I realized many, many years ago, (laughs) smugness, I call it. Um, So if Fromm is right, then the majority of people are narcissists. But there have been nine narcissists. When Emory University surveyed all the presidents up to Obama, they said the most successful presidents were all narcissists. But I'm not clear. I don't think they meant they were malignant narcissists, but FDR, and Kennedy, for example, both stack up as narcissists. They're people who are very self-involved, very concerned with getting enough sex, uh, in both of those cases, and sometimes stepping over certain boundaries to do that. Um, But narcissism of itself becomes a bad thing when, if you're a narcissist and you include the whole country in your narcissism, you might be useful as a president. But if you're a narcissist and it's only the things that satisfy you that are of concern, you won't be. I would, however, aver that better yet would be somebody who was not narcissistic, somebody who actually was pro-social, life-affirming, and wanted the benefit, the best for all of humanity. This kind of my nation versus your nation will always be narcissistic, it will always be a contest. Whereas if you're saying, I want my nation to be safe, but I want the world to be a safe place too, which actually and curiously is what America set out to do after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Didn't necessarily do a great job of it, but it—it's well, one a, of the times you, in history that it's happened. You know, well,
0: it's—you know—and that's where we get into some interesting and, and I believe, debatable points because mm-hmm. there is never a time. I, I, I would, I would ask anyone. At a, I would not rely on anybody below a PhD level of history knowledge to actually answer this question factually, but I really wonder if there was ever a time that human beings were actually satisfied with their situation or their governments.
1: Well, I don't have a PhD, but, but the Indus Valley Civilization from 2600 BC to 1900 BC, there is no evidence of any warfare. They did not have kings. They did not have temples. They appear to have been a peaceful society for 700 years. But as I don't have a PhD, I can't answer your question, Chris.
0: Well, I, you know, I only I only throw what that out you there. It's
1: to know this, Chris,
0: because I have found that history is a very muddy river of lies and distortions and confirmation bias. And I think you've seen that too, probably as much or more than I have, in terms of how people will reframe and reinterpret historical events the way they want to see them, rather than how the deep complexity and controversy and problematic things that happen because human beings were involved. You know, human beings are not naturally uh, real peaceful folk and you know we're pretty contentious
1: the 700 years we don't have any history from them because we can't read what they wrote we only have archaeology right we have no weapons of war we have fortifications along their southern border this this society is now in modern-day pakistan afghanistan but for 700 years no armies no priesthoods it
0: would be absolutely fascinating to see I mean, does that mean that there is simply no evidence of it or that they didn't have well, it? Because those are two different things, right?
1: They have um, they have implements, you know, that you could cut things with, mm-hmm. but they don't have armor. They don't have shields. The, the things that you find in every other culture that denote the war was fought, they appear to have held off people on the southern border for a while, but... Their society, there are other contemporary societies. If you look at the Coggy in Colombia, they have no history in the last 400 years of any warfare. um, And they have almost no crime. By our terms, they are an authoritarian society. They choose children who will be brought up to be the leaders. There is no democracy, but they're a quite remarkable society. They, their history, they do have history. It goes back to the conquistador when they came and said, "We're going to destroy you and set dogs on them," right. and they retreated, and they've kept away from the Europeans ever since.
0: Well, that um, was the that was a point I was going to go with. Is is that, you know, you talk about this lasting in terms of hundreds or maybe even you know a thousand years. Well, that would have to mean that nobody else was also trying to encroach on their territory too, because war is a two-sided thing, at least. And, you know, a lot of war is defensive. I mean, you have cultures that are not trying to go out practicing war, but their neighbors sure are, you know, and you see this in um, societies across the, you know, United States Native American plains. I mean, you had the Comanche running around just,
1: you know, pretty
0: much picking fights with everybody.
1: The Apache had come down from Alaska. Right. The Lakota- for whom the Black Hills are sacred only took the Black Hills over, I think in the 15th or 16th century. So there are mobile nomadic populations, but they're also, if, if you look at uh, Hopi, Zuni, they're all Pueblo peoples. There are also peaceful peoples mm-hmm. who seem to have got hold of. In fact, I think part of the Apache went from being fairly aggressive to joining the Pueblo people. So, there are all sorts of cultural moves. And yes, I mean, I personally I just, think that the function of government is defense. Well, I, well,
0: yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that, see, and, and I'm, I'm only making this point because no culture or society lives in a vacuum and not on this planet anymore. I mean, maybe back in the day when there were less than a billion people around or less than you know, 500 million or whatever, you could, you had literally very wide open spaces. I mean, you had places you could go where you weren't going to see people for a real long time. But once you do start seeing people, well, you know, things get interesting. And I think that um, I'm I'm only sort of making this point that we can, you know, we can talk about individual Civilizations, and I, I make this assertion well, I don't know if there's ever been a peaceful time in mankind's history. Okay, cool. Maybe there are a couple instances where there were outliers of groups of people who managed to avoid contact with anybody else. No, no, uh, in a warlike Indus- fashion, at least.
1: The Indus you know. Valley civilization traded with all the people around it. So it was a very active society that somehow managed to maintain peace.
0: Ah, I, I, I find that fascinating. But again, I'll call it an outlier because it certainly
1: isn't the usual
0: average it, it doesn't experience. It does if it's
1: an outlier. It's like Yuval's talking dog. If, if it has happened, it can happen.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to assert that it can't happen. Yep. That's not my position. My position is that it hasn't really happened a whole lot. And on the average, it doesn't happen. We have... Conflict. We have violent conflict. This happens all the time. It happens seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year in man's history. That's you you can always point to some place. We yeah. you know but, we but there's sorry. a
1: philosophical underpinning to what you're saying, which comes from Conrad Lorentz. Mm. Lorenz was the man who studied aggression. When Franz de in the early 90s, the psychologist who studied primates, wrote Peacemaking with Primates, he pointed out that there had been, I think, 3,000 studies of aggression and two of peacemaking and up to his time. Mm. And Lorenz is you know, looking at all of this horror and nature read in tooth and claw and all of this. Let me remind the world about one thing about Konrad Lorenz. He was a member of the Nazi party. So there was a perspective about aggression, which has been fed into sociology, which has been fed into history. We're now seeing that, yeah, if if you're gonna take the whole population and say there's always a war going on, well, what amount of the population, what percentage of the human population at any given time are involved in a war? Because I would aver that the majority of human beings are not.
0: No, I I I would agree with you. And yet it seems to be, as you just cited, I can't. I cannot reduce down the fact that there have been, you know, countless studies on war and two studies on peace, as just the act of or or the consequence of, you know, authoritarians pushing their way into sociology. I have to also look at the broader picture there of what are we really interested in?
1: Well, the studies are, you know, aggression, aggression, not of war. uh, Fair enough. But what are we? How are people aggressive? Why are they aggressive? as opposed to how do they reconcile and make up. That by 1993, right into our times, there are only two significant studies of peacemaking. It's the same with mental illness, that there are massive studies of depression, but until the 1980s, there was almost no study of happiness.
0: Right, That's what
1: that, exactly. It, it tends to build the picture and make us, so now there are people who are putting forward the point of view that in fact, we are way, that, Actually, let's let's go, Raymond Dart. Raymond Dart, 1925. He's um, a professor at Witwatersrand. What a lovely word that is, university. And he has been in the Schwarzkranz caves. He is the guy who brings forward the Tongue Baby, which is one of the significant hominid fossils. Now he goes into this cave and he finds these long tusks and he finds human hominid skulls that have been penetrated by this. And from this, Lorenz will work out of what Dart puts forward. Dart says, well, this shows that, that our ancestors were violent, terrible people. You know, they were going around, there were these piles of skulls with these holes in them. Bob Brain, in 1977, I think it was, is his successor at the University of Witwatersrand, and he goes to the Schwarzkopf Cave, and he takes out some of these tusks and he, has his, he, he gets an electron microscope and has a look at them. And sure enough, they're found in burials with, with hominids. But he finds that they've been used to dig up roots. And that when you look to the skulls that have been penetrated by these things, there are always two. These people were, people, hominids, were killed by the beast that these tusks came from. After the beast died, some more hominids came along and went and dug up some parsnips and carrots with them. Out of this came a whole theory of the vileness of man, perpetuated by Conrad Lorenz and, I again say, sociologists, rather than the real evidence where Bob Brain showed that these hominids were actually pretty much like chimps. They'd eat the occasional bit of monkey if they could catch one, but they were mainly herbivores. So you get a whole idea of what humanity is that comes out of this, which is, you know, we have Durkheim and Weber and Malinowski and Margaret Mead and all of these people and they weave these spells around these Victorian and mid 20th century ideas. We need to wake up and start looking at the world in a different way. Human beings for the most part are not aggressive. They can be made to be aggressive. They can be whipped into aggression, which is what authoritarianism does is there some way that we can enhance reconciliation techniques that we can get people to talk instead of throwing rocks at each other, you know, some truth and reconciliation instead of, you know, going down to Clearwater and throwing things at the sea organization members some way, you know, bringing that on rather than the the leap to violence, which seems to be so natural in in, still in some countries. (coughs)
0: Excuse me. Well that's kind of that's kind of my where I'm going with this is that it's it's a nice idea and it's one that I certainly embrace philosophically that you know peace is better than war that compassion and tolerance are better than you know antagonism and violence and and uh you know and arguing all day and yet um there's a practicality to this too right which is that you can I I'm careful. I don't want to say I'm I, I you know, I I am fearful too. I I just cause I don't think it's that strong, but I'm trying to be careful to not wander into airy fairyland. And I've been in airy fairyland. It's a nice place to be. It's really comfortable. I right? I lived there for decades. Airy fairyland is a wonderful place because you think that the work you're doing really matters, you're really making a difference, you're changing the world, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna do something, and it's gonna be Things are going to be different now, you know, and then you have to kind of, you know, coming out of that and years of of acclimation to the real world sort of, you know, disabuses you of certain ideas such as that, you know, one person is going to go out and change the world or is even going to, you know, save the world or make a big difference in the world or something like that. You kind of have to step this back a little bit, you know, kind of get out of fairy fairyland and get into the real world. And the real world is one of nuance conflict, complication, and a whole lot of things going on, a whole lot of people trying to do a whole lot of stuff. And in that, amongst all of that stuff is aggression. That's a reality. It's not something I, I want to have exist, and yet it does. And there's nothing I can do directly to wave a hand, cast a spell, say magic words, and it's all going to stop. It doesn't it doesn't no, I don't work that think way. At any right? point,
1: I'm advocating the use of enchantment spells or magic. Oh, man-
0: no, I'm I'm being hyperbolic to make a point. I'm not let's, I'm not refuting what you're saying here, and you know
1: there is there is a, a textbook which is of use, which is Aaron Beck's *Prisoners of Hate*, where he talks about aggression on the individual level, aggression in groups, and then aggression among nations, and ties together certain aspects of of that aggression. And I do think that. If people are, for example, abused as children, if they're violently abused as children, um, that there is much more likelihood that they will be aggressive as adults. Yep, I agree with um, that. If in societies where war has glory still associated with it. And I think we have seen a significant change. You know, if you look to the 19th century mm-hmm. and the way that you would work 12 hours a day, five days a week, half day on Saturday, and you get your Sunday off. That was normal. My great-grandfather, who drove a cab with a horse, he would expect to work a 12-hour day. Um, His children might well start working in a factory at the age of four. They might go up chimneys. They might go down the mines. Um, The idea of them going to school, well, that's something that happens in this country in the 1870s, in the US in the 1880s. And in this country, it's so their mothers could go to work. It wasn't so they'd get an education. You know, they'd learn their their three R's, the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic. Spelling wasn't obviously among the three R's. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And, you know, mum could go to work in in a a virtual slave condition. You know, when you look at the, the strikes at the beginning of the 20th century in the US and the terrible events, you know, factories burning down and when Exxon, Esso, Standard Oil decided to kill 11 strikers. But eventually those, we do now have better working conditions, better working hours, and the rapacious predators who were profiting so much, well, they still are profiting so much, but they've outsourced the slave labour into Asia, so we don't have to see it. But I think there has been a change in public perception. In terms of aggression, there's also been another change, which is that in 1900, something like 80% of the casualties of war would be soldiers. They'd be military people. By 2000, 80% of the casualties would be civilians, collateral damage. Collateral,
0: exactly. Drowns and whatnot. Do you yeah. think something's occurring to me here? I wanted to ask you about, which is because you brought up this timeline of sequence of events, and school yeah. is something that was introduced. Uh, I guess we're talking late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. As a, I mean, it was clearly an institution before that. Schools existed in the Midwest. I mean, you know, in the Western Plains, and the. The,
1: the you first know, universal education was in Austria in the seventeen sixties. It failed. The next, the, the one, the only one that continues to this day was in Prussia in Germany which was after the defeat at Jena, that, that the Prussians were so upset that Napoleon had beaten them, they decided they'd got to train soldiers from the get-go.
0: Right. Schooling
1: has never been about an education, universal schooling, in any country that I know of. It's always been about homogenizing. In the US, it was about homogenizing populations. So you wouldn't have Italian-Americans, right. African-Americans, Jew- Oh, you still do.
0: Well, of course, of course we do, because, you know, those things go back centuries, like we talk about with religion or with getting into a destructive cult. You didn't get into it in one day. You're not going to get out of it in one day. You know, it's not it doesn't work. that way.
1: But the the idea that these cultures still remain separated when the purpose of, you know, the, the avowed purpose of introducing universal education in the 1880s in the U.S., was to homogenize populations, to bring them a common language, to bring them a common culture. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with people keeping the traditions of the old homeland. No, of, homeland. Not. of Fine. Not. The uh, problem is where they a ghetto and a clique and, you know, you get the mafia or the Russian mafia or, you know, those groups which are essentially not very pro-social.
0: Exactly. But do you think an unintended consequence... I mean, if that's the intended consequence, homogenization—you know, ability to more easily create nationalism, let's say, or, pay, or you know, stoke the fires of that—I could see that being a you know a, a thought process that, that certain people would have had about those about the, establishing those systems. Yet, at the same time, we have a more educated populace, and there are consequences of educating people broadly. And we know from history that this was something heavily frowned on for centuries. Uh, In Western cultures, for example. I mean, it was literally a killing offense to translate the Bible into English so the common man could read it. People died over that. That's right. Um, People died over trying to educate the ignorant masses. You know, we had any number of... Gross atrocities and human rights violations—you know—throughout history, the Inquisition, et cetera, et cetera. All we could look to, we could we could frame that within an educational context and say, well, you know, here's a bunch of ignorant people being told what to do by people who they believe in—you know, the the priest class or the ruling class or the aristocracy, whichever group you want to want to point to—and these people, at the same time, are offering these ignorant. Folks, the masses at large, uh, protection, security, you know, et cetera. At least that's what they're—that's what they say they're offering. Of course, it's debatable how much security and safety was really being offered. But you know, this is the this is the ups and downs of of society. But I'm wondering whether this business of you know education whether the unintended consequences might have been so powerful that we are now upending these systems or looking at upending these systems because of that. you know, Because it is not ignorant people who tend to upend these things. It tends to be intelligent people who look around and go, wait a second. (laughs) This isn't how this should look. This should look different than this. And they start talking. And then other people start listening to them and going, hey, I think you're right. And, you know, and and with improved, you know, communications that we have now, with, with improved technology that we have now, which we've only gotten because we've been building on the education that we have been given through, right, through public schooling or through university education, through private institutions. We've been building this knowledge base at an incredible rate through the 20th century. If we sort of move the violence thing over to the side for just a second and go look at this knowledge base that we've built... Well, what what made that happen? Well, this effort at homogenizing people, (laughs) I think, might have been a factor. I don't know. What do you think?
1: It probably was a factor, but but it's worth saying that literacy rates in Massachusetts are lower now than they were when universal schooling was introduced. The United States already had, in some places, an excellent educational system, which was actually um, not improved upon. What, what we, I would say that there was a peak in intellectual achievement that was probably somewhere at the beginning of the 20th century that, um, you know, when, when, if I look to textbooks that were written, you know, if you look at some obscure subject and I'm going to like uh, Persian poetry in the 13th century, which I'm sure is something that fascinates you. There's a man called EG Brown, who was a professor at Cambridge who wrote a four volume set on this when I, from the beginning of the 20th century. When I started reading this material, I realized that this man was so much more highly educated than any of our current professors. This guy, he spoke seven or eight languages. That was considered natural for all professors at that time. Um, he ha- he read everything there was, and he could refer into all sorts of cultures. He really shocked me. And I realized that he was quite usual for a, a Cambridge professor of that time, Oxbridge professor. I think we have dumbed down significantly in our academic system. I, I think that the very bright are not catered for at all in our public school system. Um, so therefore, we're not, you know, those people. I, I remember reading um, uh, it's a, mm-hmm. book, uh, I a book. Gotta push, I gotta push.
0: I gotta push back here though, because worldwide literacy is better than it's ever been, according to you know factfulness. That book, you know, the the. Um, Social scientist over, I think, is in the Netherlands who's been doing all that work about how statistics are actually on the rise.
1: What were the measures of literacy in the 19th century, Chris, that we're measuring against now? The I, Massachusetts system had a measure of literacy. I very much doubt there were that many measures of literacy anywhere else that we can make comparison with at that time. So, But Massachusetts I, is just
0: I, such a specific zone. I mean, if you look at... Well, Massachusetts look is broadly. what I
1: know about and that when universal schooling was introduced there, literacy levels went down. So the idea that the public school system has enhanced literacy, if you look to say John Taylor Gatto talking about it, um, who was the New York City Teacher of the Year and then the New York State Teacher of the Year, and you can buy a copy of the book he wrote, which was pretty much his speech saying, our school system has failed completely. By the, you know, we should be able to teach them everything they need to know about reading, writing, and arithmetic by the time they're eight. Why aren't we actually getting any further? So I think there's more of a problem with the statistical construction than there is, you know, in understanding the educational level. I think people are, I, I've heard the expression frequently with my own children at school, they have to jump through hoops before they can get an education. Um,
0: yeah, I'm not trying to sit here praising, you know, the graces of our educational system, especially when it's headed by somebody like Betsy DeVos right now. I'm just I'm trying to talk in a broad swath about the fact that, you know, the data that I have is that world literacy, world poverty, world hunger are all on a decline and not just a little decline like they are like, oh, sorry, literacy is up the, the poverty, the the um starvation you know these kind of things are getting better we're we're feeding more people we are clothing more people we are seeing more people getting classes getting education i mean i'm talking about south america i'm talking about africa i'm talking about you know asia as well as the united states or the you know the but, the western yeah, sure. countries
1: the us has a poverty level for children of about 25% so it's mm. 20% yeah we were criticized by the by the un 2 years ago mm. uh, I'm not sure about these statistics. Okay. I'm really not sure. And I'm not sure that until the 1940s, there were really instruments to collect those statistics. It's only when groups like Mass Observation in Britain in the 30s started really doing small-scale statistics that we had numbers. So it's over a pretty short period. I would say, however, that housing has improved, that, that, as you say, the supply of food has improved. But we are also at the moment on, on the verge of a massive humanitarian crisis, uh, which will start in the Yemen and which will then probably spread through the Middle East, through India and through Africa in the wake of COVID-19. So, Because we were not, even though the protocols have been in place since the 1940s, only South Korea followed those protocols with COVID-19. Mm. And so you know, they, they've got, what, less than 200 deaths or something, something mm-hmm.
0: And New Reddit. Zealand. New Zealand did pretty well uh,
1: 96 is isolating themselves yeah, did, as well. New Zealand did it by exclusion, whereas South Korea did it once the virus had arrived, that the day after a doctor first diagnosed COVID-19 in a Wuhan patient, the government went into action. Day two, they went into action. Here, yeah. we have three months. In yeah. the US, I'm not sure the government has actually got into action yet. No. But maybe someday. You wear a mask. It's a patriotic thing. You don't wear a mask. You take... Qual- Coxyquin, or what have Medical
0: you? Hydrochloroquoxyquin, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, uh, I definitely have nothing useful or, or helpful to say about America's response to COVID-19. Um, okay.
1: And, there, and there, is, there are no granaries prepared for the starvation that is just imminent now. Mm. You know, so, mm. yeah, improvements in child labour laws, um, though you can still... In the Arabian countries, you can still buy a marriage to a nine-year-old girl for half an hour.
0: So are we saying right now that things are worse than they were a century ago?
1: I think we're saying that there are too many factors to crush down into a statistic, that some aspects of life, if, as I say, 80% of casualties in war in 1900 were military casualties, 80% by 2000 were civilian, We're saying there's a really bad problem to be addressed here, that we're murdering civilians. In Iraq, there were, what, 800,000 deaths? In Afghanistan, 150,000, according to Johns Hopkins. A million people, nearly all of them civilians.
0: I know, I know. It's it's a... um... Getting back to the main theme of this that I that I that I wanted to get into and you bringing up those statistics easily helps me get there. Um, I am still left with this question that we're talking about, which is. um, You know, the moral decisions or the moral judgments we make about what are you know how we decide whether our governments get a thumbs up or a thumbs down on you know particular issues has a lot to do with how we individually morally see the world and Oops. yet the decision making process that occurs in at the level of high government is not necessarily operating on nor even necessarily should it operate on that same moral compass that we as individuals are using. Mm-hmm. And that's my quandary. Is I'm actually wondering about this. I'm not sitting here asserting that's a truth, although it seems to be empirically true that that's the case. You know, that it's not the case that Donald Trump or or Boris Johnson or, you know, Macron or any of these guys are particularly sitting at home thinking about okay well what do I want to do about this problem with Russia right now it's that that's not the that's not the calculus for making foreign relations or foreign affairs decisions right the calculus has a lot more to do with the interests of your nation as a nation not the individuals in it because there's a difference you know it's
1: called real, real politic. okay that's the term for it yeah and uh, with a k on the end cuz whoever Made it up, couldn't spell properly. Um, (laughs) I've seen that
0: expression before. I wasn't sure exactly what it was talking about. But if we're talking about the practicality of the decision-making process and the factors that come into play when you are a leader of a nation making decisions versus the citizenry of of the nation looking at those decisions from their individual perspective you can see that there is a very different set, or at least you should be able to see, that there's a very different set of factors at play in those two I can give a very
1: strong example of real politic. Uh Um, In 1938, in September, um, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, met with Adolf Hitler and with um, the Premier of France, and an agreement was made uh, regarding Czechoslovakia. Now, Here is the real politic, that Chamberlain has frequently been accused of appeasing Hitler, this word, which just means actually to negotiate, but let's not worry about it. So appeasement has become a negative term because of that conference, uh, the Munich conference. Now, Chamberlain came home, waved a little bit of paper and said, I've guaranteed peace and our time. Now, the real politic aspect of this is very simple. On the day that he signed that agreement, the United Kingdom... Great Britain and Northern Ireland had 12 high-altitude fighter airplanes in service. They were Hawker Hurricanes, 12. If war had been declared on Germany, which seems to be the popular consent about what should have happened, Britain would have been invaded and would be under German rule. Chamberlain lost his reputation by doing the only possible thing, which was because the military did not exist to resist the Germans because, and he's the guy that started rearmament in 1935 against the wishes of the Labour party who would later castigate him as the guilty man who caused this by holding off Germany for another year. It made it possible to win the war. That is real politics, where you say, you know, we'd like to do this morally and properly. We'd like to do this, but it's going to stuff us up. It's going to really put us in trouble. I would like to see, a politics where we do understand that the means and the ends are one. But, that you can't have a sinister, horrific, you know, you can't go and napalm people, civilians, and expect that good will come of it. But in real politics, you do have to, you know, with Britain decide, Britain, the UK deciding to leave the European Union by a 2% margin. The first thing that Theresa May, as Prime Minister, did was visit India to try and make a deal with Modi. And as we said earlier, Modi presides over a country where there are 13 million slaves. I don't really want to be in an economic deal with China, and I, for 40 years, have been telling people it's a very bad idea to become dependent upon a fascist dictatorship like China.
0: Exactly, and yet, and yet.
1: And yet American industry after Reagan and and after Thatcher here, manufacturing industry was wound down so that we could use the slave forces of the special economic zones of the Pacific Rim and of Indonesia. Um, Companies like Nike moved into the slave labor field and found that they could make massive profits for their shareholders. And gradually what hadn't been realized, which was rather obvious, was that the Chinese wouldn't just make the goods they would take over the design of the goods, they would take over the sale of the goods, and they would take the profit of the goods, leaving us in a situation where China is very close now in military strength to the United States. In fact, they have some weapon systems that are more sophisticated. So the real politic of how on earth you deal with that problem, the first part of that is you economically separate yourself and isolate yourself, which is where I think and I did, I admit it, I voted to leave the European Union, but we should have stayed in because we can't make a deal with the U.S. because the U.S. is no longer stable politically. You don't know which way it's going to go. Well, it could be pro-Russian. I mean, and for us here, being pro-Russian is not a good idea. Yeah, so well, Union,
0: we're, we're definitely not pro-Russian. And that's where, that's where the propaganda and the ignorance of the common man really gets in the way of making rational decisions on a foreign playing field, you know, because this enters because these ideas enter in, you know, that that America is now like, you know, bought off by Russia or something. When the truth of the matter is that Donald Trump has business interests in Russia post presidential terms that he doesn't want to fuck up. And that's really the long and short of it. He but just you, doesn't want to with, piss this guy off because he's going to rely on him for contracts, you know, with the oligarchy. In the future. I mean, we yeah. already know this. This isn't, this isn't even like complicated calculus because Trump's not a complicated guy. But, no, you know,
1: we, we've- We have other complicated situations like Germany's relationship with Russia in that Germany, because it decided on a green whim to close all of its nuclear power stations, which were, of course, environmentally relatively friendly in terms yep. of their CO2 emissions, and to take gas in from Russia instead and to refire their coal power stations, which is pretty ungreen, Germany is now dependent upon Russia. If Russia closes the pipeline, Germany closes. Oh, so that was a that's a point decision. where real politic went wrong, and a reliance upon and it, you know I, I have to really emphasise I am absolutely pro Russia. I'm absolutely pro China. I'm absolutely against the leaderships of those two countries. But I am absolutely for the people of those two countries. And I think the alienation that, that has sprung up, you know, all of the bullshit propaganda about how evil some people are. I mean, the conference in Toronto, um, when my friend uh, Professor Dvorkin spoke, there was a certain amount of opposition based upon the idea that, be, that he must be pro Putin because he was Russian, that he must be anti Ukrainian because he was Russian. Now, the fact was that a few months before, I'd seen him embracing Ukrainians. So I knew that that wasn't true. But these prejudices which we foster by confining ourselves into national boundaries and saying, I belong to this people, therefore those people are bad, that's something we really need to grow out of. We really need to get adult and say, people are people. Humanity is humanity. You save the lot or you save none of us, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. My governments
1: agitate against that by using the propaganda of the enemy, which, as Hitler pointed out, is how you make a cohesive state you make and make an enemy out there.
0: Well, exactly, because that's what we instinctively respond to because we form groups to deal with threats. That's, uh, it, the evolutionary biology on that is uh, crystal clear. I mean, there's, there's well, or to collaborate it, you know, and a second pick, grader could put it together.
1: <laughs> What's that? Or to collaborate and pick fruit, we form groups. Um, You know, if you look at the Barker Pygmy, another group who don't have warfare, they do stuff together, but they don't have a tribal leader. They're what's called a band society, them and the the San, the so-called Bushmen of the Kalahari, they're the only two I know of. They don't have a boss and they never have. They go back centuries, no boss. If you're the guy that's good at climbing trees and getting honey, you're in charge when we do that. And... But they don't see any need to have somebody in charge of them telling them what to do. And
0: but how big are these groups that we're talking about?
1: Well, I mean, you're always within the Dunbar number of 150 people. When you go beyond that, it gets difficult. Exactly. So that,
0: exactly. But, so it's not exactly the outlier that it's sort of presented no, as there. It,
1: but, but if the point is that groups get together to get to defend themselves, I'm oh, just saying no, no, around that, common cause. Yeah.
0: No, no, no. Groups are groups are about common cause.
1: Yeah, exactly. And,
0: but but I think you'll probably be willing to go with me on this. That and maybe not, but that the most, um, dedicated, the groups that inspire the most fierce loyalty, dedication. Uh, energetic uh, participation will be conflict groups, even if it's friendly competition, competition sports groups. But more to the point, monastic,
1: when it's when, it's when it's
0: when it's lives yeah. on the line.
1: What about monastic orders? What about the fanaticism of, of the Benedictines, of the Franciscans, the Capuchins? These people are very passionate about what they're doing, and they're not out there fighting anybody and the same with evangelicals in the u.s that people come together with a, a real mission with a sense of cause
0: yeah but they're always fighting other people that's why there's always a war on christmas every year that's why there's yeah, a war on it's starbucks not, coffee it's quite, cups quite,
1: quite the same as the fighting that happens with tanks and missiles hey, it? it's
0: fighting man it's competition right it's the evangelicals versus the atheists and by the way where do you think all those atheists come from the evangelical community right? they come out they fight each other. I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to I don't want to go too big of a role on that cuz I'll start pissing people off, but it is kind of funny how, you know, these groups tend to have been one at one time and now they're two and they fight. Um, you know, the scientologists and the ex-scientologists, the atheists and the evangelicals, the islams and the ex-islams. I mean, you know, they, they it's just it's just that's where you that's where you get, you know, the the true hardcore stuff really comes out of that. But um, but, talking I, but, I'm talking in, but I'm trying to talk broadly here now, okay? I mean, yeah, fine. Point, point me to a monastery. I'm not looking for the exceptions. I'm looking for the broad rules here. You can point outliers out to me all day long. It doesn't mean that the majority of groups cohes around common cause, and that common cause tends to be strongest and most passionate when it's survival on the line.
1: There were more people involved in the monastic societies during the Middle Ages than, than were involved in the armies. So it's not a minority situation. And what's more, wait a minute, you wait, man, to... wait a minute, wait a
0: minute. What's this now? You're telling me more people were in the monasteries than were in armies where, when? What, what, how does Middle that work?
1: Ages, If you look at the period between, say, uh, 1200, around about the, f- the foundation of the Franciscans, through to the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII in the 1530s, you'll find that the armies are actually tiny. There are these small professional armies in Europe. Mm-hmm. The monasteries are overflowing with people. So th- there is a, a comparison in, in numbers. It has not always been. Uh, and, and you could look at the same in Buddhism in India during the reign of Ashoka in, five, you know, in uh, what, 300 BC, around there. So there have been huge populations involved in monastic communities, in religious communities. Are we,
0: are we assuming that those are non-violent communities by nature? Because you've pointed out to me many times that Buddhists are violent and that, you know, well, and certainly Christians the, in Western Europe in the Middle Ages were not pacifists. I mean, Crusades.
1: The Capuchins, the, 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 the Benedictines, the Franciscans were. Um, if you're talking about the Knights Hospitaller and um, the Knights Templar, they're relatively small groups. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of Buddhism, it's only within the 20th century that Buddhism with soldiers and particularly in Japan. Um, since then, of course, we, we have, um, Sri Lanka and what's happening in Myanmar at the moment under the guise of Buddhism. But the Buddhist, if we go back to Ashoka, which is around the time of Alexander the great, we're talking about a period where there had been tremendous warfare, And this one man then switches it over and the armies disband and and you have monastic communities the flagellant communities of the mid-14th century in europe that there are many times when there have been huge amounts of people sometimes yes the two things overlap so you get the people's crusade the first crusade in the 12th century which just pulls up whole sections of the population and goes and has, has them commit mass suicide against the, uh, the Turks. Um, well, there weren't even Turks there at that point, thinking about it, but against the, the peoples of Asia Minor. So the two things can overlap, but there have been large peaceful groups as well as large military groups, and they are fervent. You know, these people are getting up at three o'clock in the morning to pray, and then, you know, they're, they're not eating properly. They're, they're doing all sorts of things. Then that declines, and you get the rapacious nature of the Catholic monasteries by the time of the Reformation, where they're basically having a damn good time. And you get like a piece of music like Carmina Burana, which are monks drinking songs about going to the brothel, you know, so, right. but they're peaceful. <laughs> they're not, they're
0: peaceful. <laughs> so in other words, humans ebb and flow.
1: Culture yeah, shifts. all over the place, especially right. when you're not looking.
0: Right. So when we start talking about our nature and this sort of thing, we can find plenty of examples of good and plenty of examples of quote-unquote bad.
1: Chimp one side, bonobo the other. Yeah, there we
0: go. That's right. That's right. Um, All right. Fair enough. Well, I still am going to sort of sit on this assertion that the... That the factors at play in government level decision making, when it comes to how it deals with its own populace and how it deals with populace of other countries or relationships with other countries, that there is a different moral compass and a different set of factors and importances at play than when an individual or groups of, you know, small groups of citizens are sitting there criticizing the government's decisions for you know, well, I wouldn't have done that. I I don't think that's right, you know, sort of thing. I think the second guessing that goes on is mostly done out of uh, a lot of ignorance from what I've seen and heard when I look at social media. Only after, only after I fully inform myself on some decision or process. I mean, for example, looking in North Korea, going down the deep, deep, deep dive on North Korea, all the history of the Kim family, all the Japanese incursions, the Chinese relationships. I mean, how did this whole thing happen in the first place? Why is it a split country? Who are these people? What is this all about? Once you really, really dive into that, you have a different view, necessarily, hopefully so, you know, of that situation, a much more complex, nuanced view of it than oh, Kim Jong-un is a cult leader. And Absolutely. I'm not defending Kim Jong-un. The guy is a cult leader. But yeah. there's more to it than that. There's a lot there's more a lot. to it than that. Yeah. And interacting with that man, you know, from the office of POTUS, for example, with what, like, what Trump did with him, you know, great, great, huge mistake, but not necessarily for the reasons people were saying it was a mistake.
1: You know? And it did seem to ease tensions between the South and the North. I mean... For the sake of our viewers, in 1910, Japan invaded Korea and enslaved the entire population. That's right. At the end of the Second World War, two colonels, two American colonels, sat in a room for 30 minutes and decided where the, the border should be between the bit that they were going to give to Stalin and the bit they were going to keep. Nobody talked to the Korean people. Dictators came into place in both the South and the North. Uh, Singh in, in the South was every bit as bad as the guy in the North. The guy in the North then decides he's going to have the lot, and apart from is it Chosun province, he takes all of Korea. Then you have the Incheon Offensive under MacArthur. MacArthur decides he's going to use nuclear weapons and not only take out North Korea, but also China. He is relieved of command. Immediately <laughs> and at once, <laughs> very hurriedly. <laughs> but what does happen is that every town in North Korea is bombed flat, the whole country. The only town that remains traditionally is one that, that where the border changed. It had been in the South and it was given to the North. There was not one town remaining. But these people are a little bit wary you know, of, of America and Britain and Australia, the countries that attack them, is not tremendously surprising in the same way that Iran, having had their democracy overthrown in 1953 right. by the British and Americans and had a, a man who's been called the most cruel dictator of the late 20th century put in power over them. I, I uh, learned Tai Chi Chuan from a guy who had been part of the Shah's bodyguard, mm. and he would not talk about it, and he shuddered when the, the when it was brought up, the things he had seen in that country where, you know, if you felt like feeding somebody to the lions and having a bit of a laugh, you could do it. It was more like Imperial Rome than anything in the 20th century. When you get the other side of these things, you know, I mean, I understand how terrified the Russians were when the CIA decided that they had, I think it was 200 missiles They decided they got it first. Then they decided they got 500. At that time, the Russians had four missiles. And they're suddenly seeing this huge expansion of American arms under Kennedy and then LBJ. What are they going to do? They don't have the money to fund it. You know, they, they don't know what to do. And you get this incredible complexity that they had completely infiltrated all Western intelligence services. They knew exactly what was happening. And there was nothing they could do about it.
0: Exactly. But we had infiltrated them and knew some of what they were planning on doing and what was going on. But, um, but we were grossly overreacting to the situation because we didn't have accurate intelligence of exactly what their situation was. And nothing it took like- us a while to catch up on all of that. And
1: John Rumsfeld was, was involved in the first Bush government mm-hmm. and, of course, before with Reagan in projects he and his friends were called the crazies by other presidential aides. He was on a a, a mission to find out what weapon systems Russians had. And he decided they had invisible weapon systems because they didn't appear to have some of the systems the U S had. So they must have superior ones. At that point, a MIG came down in Germany and they found that it was made of regular steel. It wasn't even titanium steel, like a phantom. They had nothing. And, Except their intelligence. You know, you probably know that at the end of World War II, Reinhard Galen, the head of the Nazis' intelligence in Eastern Europe, went to the U.S. authorities and said, you've got a choice. You can hang me for a war criminal or I'll give you 2,000 agents. And they decided on the latter because this is, remember, real politic? Oh, so if, you wanna,
0: if you want to do what? the deepest dive... Ever. Well, hang on.
1: What, oh. what, what they did not know <laughs> yeah. was that all 2,000 of those agents were, were known to the Russians. So the network that was bought was a network that was being fed. So, you know, real politic. Yeah. I think sometimes we need to come back to a moral compass which says we are life affirming. We are pro-social. We are pro-human. And where people start doing horrific things, like, like the Guantanamo Bay thing, the torture report that um, yes. you know, the, film the report is about, yep. that Barack Obama decided not to release. I mean, what is that, where does that put us morally? You know, I know. I torture, know. No evidence of any kind. You know?
0: uh, well, that we know of. And that's no.
1: the it, well uh, the evidence that we don't know of is not evidence, you know. Well, that's the thing. thing.
0: We that's and this is where this is where things get complicated because I agree with you. I I would like things to be simpler, I would like things to be easier, and I would like things to be more understandable, but that's not the world we live in. And we don't have all the data, and and unfortunately, by necessity, the way the models we have have adopted in our governments since the end of World War II, both here and across the pond with you guys, has been that there will be such a thing as state secrets. And there will be such a thing as national security, and there are things that you just don't get to know as a citizen.
1: The, The guy that made the torture report had full access to all CIA information. He had access through their computers. And when the report came out, there's one instance from it. Barack Obama said that Osama bin Laden was caught through intelligence gained at Guantanamo Bay. That was a lie. He was caught because of a telephone tap.
0: Yes, I know. I know.
1: So the point is... Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I I realise this is... The best analysis we have, and the Feinstein report is the best... Yeah, Yeah,
0: no, I'm. I'm sorry. I realize I'm saying this back in response to the report thing, and that wasn't. I'm sorry. That was not what I meant to be. uh, Okay, I'm talking about the the ins and outs of our of our uh, uh, the complicated affair we have with Japan, with South Korea, with uh, China, with Iran, with Iraq. Like these are countries that is not. It's not a simpleton relationship. Yeah. It's it's not simple Simon over there. We're over there for the oil. No, we're actually over there for a lot of other things. Right? There are lots of reasons we're over there. Why are we allied with Saudi Arabia, a truly psychotic country led by madmen? Why are we allied with them? Well, look at the region. Who else are we allied with? I mean, well, Israel. If we separate. pull out, if if we pull out, it's not a vacuum. Other people are going to go in there. China could go in there, Russia could go in there. I mean, there are reasons that we're there that are really sometimes just a deterrent it's not it's not even a matter of oh it's just for the money. yeah, money's always a factor, but there are other factors at play too, and influence but is there, one of those
1: there's, there's nobody really working with that policy that that when the what was it one hundred and thirty u s troops were withdrawn from The regions held by the Kurds on the Turkish border, 130 troops. That allowed the Turks to then bomb the Kurds and meant the release of, I believe, 70,000 Daesh prisoners. So there is no real politic going on here. It should be. It would have been very easy to leave those 130 people in place, but Donald Trump decided not to. And he thereby released Daesh back into the area. So Saudi Arabia, I mean, what are you going to do? That, that there is no real doubt anymore that 9-11 came out of Saudi Arabia. It certainly didn't come out of Iraq. And that um, Al-Qaeda, so-called, is a Saudi Arabian organization funded by you know, the Bin Laden Bank, among other people, who also funded George Bush Jr. It gets very confusing, doesn't it?
0: Well, it does. It does get confusing.
1: I believe real politics should be played. But I think what we're actually what history tells us is that it hasn't been. That idiocy has been the policy from one generation to the next.
0: Yes, I think that it has been. I think it's been a, a mix of both. I think it's been a mix of both. I mean, you yourself have pointed out you know, Chamberlain's real politic, I could talk to you about American decisions that were made that, that were good decisions to make, even though they appeared publicly to not be great decisions, um, you know, or based on general consensus or whatever, right? And it bothers me only because younger people are coming up now looking at some of these decisions, and they're basing their judgment factor on it, on the propaganda rather than the reality of what actually happened, because we're not even used to talking about these things in this deeply of a nuanced Kind of way, you know what I mean. I, I only learn about all this stuff because I am um, figuring out, or I'm learning as I'm going here, as I'm uh, over the last few years. Well, wh- you know, are these decisions Donald Trump's making with our foreign, with our allies and our enemies? Are these good? What What is these decisions based on? What is this? What's going on here? If I just kind of okay. He's a narcissist. He's horrible, and everything he's going to do is bad. Well, that's not very nuanced thinking, right? And I'm, that's not very critical thinking. So I feel bad about myself when I think that way. So then I go, okay, well I should look deeper, and I should go go diving into this more. And so I do, and I try to, you know, to 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 take a little deeper dive than 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 usual. And. Um, and come away with all these questions, right, which, which prompts our conversation here of, well, wait a second, this isn't quite as simple as I thought it was. And in fact, um, you know, some of these authoritarian moves that get made actually are the right moves to make. But, 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 now here comes the great big but. Then you get somebody like a Donald Trump coming along. And, you know, George Bush was what we thought would be the stupidest president ever, right? Like, we thought George Jr. would be, like, the craziest. I mean, I've seen that guy on a hot mic saying things that were clearly out of some ambient, f- f- you know, f- uh, fugue. I mean, I have no idea what this it, guy was it, talking about, right?
1: Had halcyon and, and admitted to taking up to six of them a day on, again, on a hot mic, not realize, talking to Larry King in... In Europe, halcyon is a banned drug because one of its normal side effects is uh, psychosis. Yeah, exactly. The the United States' wild president was taking six a day.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we knew that was bad and we thought, well, that's as bad as it can get. And then we have Trump come along, right? And I know there's a lot of people out there who really dig Trump. I'm sorry, I'm critical of the guy. You know, I personally, as an individual, I don't like him. I, I don't like the decisions he's made. I can see the monster factory that he was raised in. I get it. You know, I'm not, it's not like I have to blame him or think he's got some evil black heart. He's the product of his family and his family were awful.
1: Norman and, Vincent Pale, the cult group that his family belonged to is one of the most powerful and influential and dangerous cult groups of the 20th century.
0: Exactly. The power
1: of positive thinking.
0: That's right. And his dad, and then, you know, his then
1: the military academy and. Yeah, oh.
0: Exactly. Mr. Bonespurs, et cetera, et cetera. So we know Trump's not an overachiever. We know Trump is a liar. We know he's a pathological liar. There's just no other word to describe the level of dishonesty that the man lives in on a daily basis. But more to the point, I'm even willing to forgo and forgive even that if the guy was making smart decisions in terms of policy or in terms of, you know, improving our standing in the world. And the fact of the matter is that he has— made some decisions that inadvertently were not necessarily bad decisions on a foreign playing field. But his whole attitude about it is so fucking off the rails because he comes at it as though he's a mob boss. Because yeah. that's the world he actually lives in. He's, he's a developer in New York. Do you have, you know, if you want to know about the mafia's connections with de- with real estate development in New York, go look up The Concrete Club. You know, go look up how business actually gets done in New York or how it was done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s before Giuliani came and and busted these people's asses. So, we've, you know, you've got this criminal background, so you have this criminally minded person who has now risen through what I am convinced, and I don't know that I will change my mind about this. Um, Maybe somebody could convince me otherwise, but I've been watching this thing from day one, and I'm absolutely convinced that Donald Trump did this whole campaign as a propaganda thing, for as brand placement, product placement for himself. And he won! And he didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. You know, the Democrats didn't expect it. The Republicans didn't expect it. The GOP only started taking him seriously in the last couple months of the campaign and started endorsing him. So anyway, my point, though, where I'm going with all of this is not to go on a tirade about Trump. It's just to point out that his attitude towards how we deal with foreign relations and foreign affairs allies and enemies is way way off because it's all from in his mind it's all about what are you doing for me yeah you know his whole take on nato you guys ain't paying your nato dues right you're not paying your percentages and so we're carrying you because he thinks we're a protection racket Around the world. He thinks our bases in South Korea, Germany, uh, our Syria occupation, Afghanistan, he thinks that's all some kind of protection racket because that's how he thinks. And that's crazy. It's crazy. So he has stumbled into his unpredictability, has set the other authoritarians a little bit off. You know, Z doesn't really know exactly what to do with Trump. Uh, you know, uh, Kim took advantage of him for as long as he could, but he got wise to him, right? I mean, Trump got wise to what Kim was up to. I, I, it only took about 30 briefings from his State Department and, and his staff before he finally clued in that he should stop talking to Kim. And I, I don't know that he still really got it through his head. But... Um, but anyway, this is speaking to your point about how if we could meld or merge or meld these things or somehow get this, this, this moral, you know, the, this idea that leaders should be working for the good of their people and perhaps for the good of other countries at the same time, if possible. But that's where the rub really enters in, because sometimes other countries are led by people who, you know, are not good people.
1: No, and I mean... On on the point of Xi and and Trump, I think Xi understands very well what Trump is. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what China is doing with its um, new Silk Route, that the the one band or whatever it's called, I don't remember. Look at what's happened in Sri Lanka, that they loaned them the money to create this fantastic airport that nobody uses. They loaned them the money to make these fantastic new docks that nobody uses, and then when they couldn't afford the repayment, the interest payments, they said, okay, give us a 100-year lease. So what China has done is create military bases right across Asia by doing this, and into Mm -hmm. Africa as well. So China actually now has the potential, it has the weapons. I don't think that Xi is a warmonger. I don't think that's right. where he's going. But he has the power now to stand up and economically they're going to be the most powerful people in the world because we let them.
0: Well, that's because- exactly and it's, and it's people like Trump who would allow that to happen because he truly doesn't understand what and who he's dealing with.
1: But it in started the- in the 60s with the globalization project when uh, Sukato was allowed to do what he did was it Sukarno, I get them confused one was deposed but the East Timor massacres yeah. you know a huge amount of people just annihilated so that Nike and Alan Sugar, the man who actually started the pro- the programme, The Apprentice wasn't Donald Trump uh, he could move his Amstrad there these, these people whose only concern is making money yeah. and I think If there's a moral shift in our society, go back to when, um, what's his name, Bernays was inventing public relations. Oh, right. Exactly exactly the same public relations that Goebbels would use, as he pointed out. Yep. Bernays is, is kind of saying, well, of course we want democracy one day, but only when the public are educated enough to be democratically aware. Until then, we have to have patrician capitalism telling us what to do, and I fear, that the cacocracy, the rule of the worst, is still with us right now. The money is still with the people who had it 100 years ago. For the most part, you get the occasional Bill Gates, you know, George Soros, what have you. But the big money hasn't shifted. 90% of the families that had it in 1900 have it now. And they have power over the world, which in a democratic society they should not have. You shouldn't be able to buy politicians. You shouldn't be able to use real politics to say, well, if you don't give us the concessions we want, then we won't do this for you. Those kind of things should be gone. At the other end of the scale, I am opposed to state control. You know, the idea of a socialist state that determines everything. We saw that. Um, Goss' plan in, in, the, in the USSR, where you know, they determined how many toothbrushes there'd be and right. how many there'd be and people would queue for hours to buy a pair of shoes that had a cardboard sole. That's where that thinking goes. There shouldn't be state control, but there also shouldn't be the control plutocracy, the control of the rich. Mm -hmm. How we solve that problem while, you know, getting a moral compass that actually doesn't allow the massacre of children, which I'm afraid is still happening as a consequence of Western military action. Look at the. The arms that we're giving to Saudi Arabia to kill children in the Yemen. Just unbelievable. Absolutely yeah. unbelievable. In the twenty-first century we should still be doing this kind of primitive action because of course we need to sell arms because they make money. You know? so, well, well i tell
0: you I tell you, man, you know, there are lots of factors at play here. It's crazy. It really is, because you wouldn't think that, well, we don't need the money. No, actually, Actually, some people really do need the money. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. It's fucking crazy. This is, um, this is a difficult conversation, isn't it? Well, oh. <laughs> I mean, right? it is because it's hard because really what I'm trying to do here, of course, is I'm, as I'm sure I've made plain over this last hour, is I'm trying to reconcile some things in my own head here. You know, I'm just trying to have a conversation about this, and and the things I'm talking about right now are things that have been on my mind. But I, you know, I I I need the conversation because it is difficult. It is it is not. You know, do we want to support our governments? I, I I think we do. I mean, they are our governments. They are the things that represent us and make decisions for us. We'd like them to be. You know, I'd like to have some affinity for them, uh, you know, and then and then you see some of the things that go on and you just go, oh, my God, well, I don't really agree with that. Then you get some more information about it. You go, OK, well, I get why that was necessary. I still don't like it, but I get why it was necessary. And then you kind of go, well, is it possible to change this? Is it really possible to change it? And if so, in what direction And that's where I kind of hit a roadblock. I hit a a bit of a brick wall, you know, because everybody's got some idea. But, okay, that's nice. There's lots of ideas. But what do we do do here? You know, can we do anything?
1: I'm not sure. I I mean, firstly, um, Arthur Kersler brought up the idea of holons, this idea that you have increasingly large hierarchies of organization. And I think you do point to an error in that idea, which is that the different levels of organisation don't function in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that by the time you get to a huge amount of people, you have a different function going on. I'd also, at this point, as I always do in all conversations, mention Ira Chalef and um, say that his work on courageous followership, on not letting leaders get away with the immoral things, on, on keeping the focus on, and we're now going to see a copy of, of Intelligent Disobedience, which we also recommend to all our viewers. Um, Ira's done incredible work. And, and he is very, you know, he works with congressmen and has done for oh, nearly 40 years now. Uh, um, I've known him, he actually worked for me for a few weeks before he went off there to work for Al Gore and, various other people. So he's very aware of what's happening in government and he's very concerned that uh, people in government should be moral, that that we should be looking towards the good of humanity and that the the problem is often that some stupid mistake is made. Um, The invasion of Afghanistan, look where that's got us to. Um, In um, 2001, when the Taliban the religious scholars, to translate that word, were were running Afghanistan. They had a deal with the British government and they exported 108 tonnes of raw opium. In 2004, after Helmand province had come under the control of the UK government, there was an export of 4,004 tonnes. Yeah, 108, 4,004. Wow. So, What was the incredible benefit of getting rid of the Taliban in this particular instance? Well, it meant that if you were on the streets of Glasgow, you could buy a bag of heroin for 50 pence, which is about 70 cents. That heroin went all over the world as a conse- and, you know, an unintended consequence. And you then get into the wonderful um, movie War Machine with Brad Pitt, in, yeah. Yeah. and he's kind of going, well, why can't they grow something else? And it's, well, they're forbidden from growing cotton, because that would be in rivalry with the United States. So they grow poppy. So you get these incredibly Byzantine twists of um, relationship right. because a stupid mistake was made in the first place, which was instead of going after Saudi Arabia for 9-11, they went after Afghanistan. They went after Iraq. So instead of going to the House of Saud and said, saying, <laughs> you've got to stop this stuff, You know, stop it. Well,
0: well, I'm under the impression that we are such staunch allies with Saudi Arabia, mainly because it gives us position with Iraq, or sorry, Iran. And Iran is considered the major threat of that region. That's how I've read about about it.
1: Their their biggest enemy. But I mean, of course, what held the Middle East together was Iraq, that the Saddam Hussein was an evil bastard, but he killed far less people than were killed during the Iraq war. And, yeah. you know, he also perpetuated a system. I mean, the, the reality is that when the war started, he had debts of 460 million pounds. So about $550 million for arms purchased from Britain. And yeah. under our law, They're all guaranteed. So when he didn't pay it back, the British taxpayer did. So the profits that are coming in from munitions might not be what we think. I mean, as the movie Lord of War says at the end, the five permanent members of the Security Council at the UN are the five biggest arms dealers in the world. Wow. So real politic tells us that we are in a dangerous place. I think we should push towards not letting four-year-olds go up chimneys, you know, to having an age of consent, yeah. per se, to, to, yeah. towards moral things. I think also that we should impose upon politicians a very simple rule, which is if, if they tell a lie in the performance of their duty, they are barred from politics for the next five years. So if they, if they willfully say something that is untrue, probably untrue, they shouldn't be allowed to represent people for another five years. So that when Margaret Thatcher stood up in the House and said that the Belgrano, the Argentinian ship, was inside the so-called exclusion zone around the Falkland Islands, and those 500 people lost their lives as a consequence. It was a lie. The ship was outside. She personally gave the order to sink it. We know that now. When that happens, that politician should be disgraced, maybe forever, but maybe for a period of time. I think politicians... It also worries me just how many American politicians belong to fraternal societies or sororities.
0: Yes. The yeah, the conspiracy answer. buffs go crazy with that, but it is interesting.
1: Yeah, they're like, but they're secret societies, aren't they? They're old boy networks. And um, I was looking at the figures the other day because I'm rewriting what used to be opening minds, and we're going to call it something else. People can write in and tell us what to call it. Um, but in going through that, I looked at hazing and, and the, you know, the effect of these really extraordinarily cultish behaviours on our society, and mm-hmm. you know that maybe if we could deal with some of that, if people were a bit more honourable, a bit less corrupt, yes, a bit more, you know, if if cops were, as so many are, concerned about the law rather than protecting their the other boys in blue, or I don't want to be sexist, well, the boys in blue, yeah, <laughs> we have a different society, which is why we launched a Cops Integrity Matters hashtag to say. This is really important. Corruption is the most dangerous thing in our society.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I, I, you know, I, again, I don't disagree with anything you're saying here. I, I guess it really does kind of come back around for, at least for you and me, or me, I guess, I, you know, to continuing. I, you know, I, I'm just looking at, you know, what's the, what's the most effective thing I could be doing here? What's the best thing I could be doing? And it seems that within my knowledge and ability, What I'm doing is exactly the right thing to be doing. You see that's the thing. You got to sometimes you really got to hash this stuff out. You got to talk it through, you know what I mean? I hope I haven't alarmed anybody with some of the things I've been saying here because I'm really just contemplating ideas. This isn't like I'm like arguing from some, you know, concrete position here. I'm really just sort of looking at this and like, well, what about this? You know, what about the pros of authoritarianism versus the cons of authoritarianism? I don't I don't know if we can't have that conversation. I don't know that we are really thinking the thought through as well as we should. You know because um because groups need leaders, people need people to follow I mean again, maybe in smaller groups, that's not always the case, but generally speaking, empirically, you know looking around, there's followers, and there are leaders, and people you know are living lives of quiet desperation, maybe some people are living lives of not so quiet desperation, and not scream, yeah, exactly, but no <laughs> but. Um, but we look to leaders to tell us what to do to inform us to guide us and Mm -hmm. we have certainly been uh, inarguably I I don't think this is really even a debatable matter we have not had that here in the United States with COVID Um, there have been a couple governors who have stepped up and been notable but otherwise Cuomo
1: was incredible what he did in New York exactly and you know, the president, I don't want Joe Biden. I want Cuomo.
0: Yeah, there's other problems with Cuomo. But but our governor here in Colorado, fortunately, we are in a state that is actually relatively under control. And our governor is is on top of it and has been fighting the good fight on this from day one. So so we're in a pretty decent place here. Um there has been a lot of debate and argument about the about Newsom in California whether the decisions he's making are good or bad or whether any decisions he make even could be good given the the past history of California and its sort of disastrous economic situation i don't know that anybody can put that house back together again but um we'll see we'll see what happens
1: bring about Reagan you know oh god government. oh you god
0: the more i learn about Reagan in retrospect the more disgusted i am
1: i mean it I grew is, up- you know, I watched um, the movie Trumbo last week about Gordon uh. Trumbo, the scriptwriter, of course, yep. ran foul of the blacklist. And, yep. and this. I didn't realize that the House on American Activities Committee was only disbanded in 1975.
0: Damn, I didn't realize that either.
1: I make a point about authority, authoritarian, authoritative, which, which I think always needs to be made. There are two kinds of authority. One of them is rank authority. I'm the boss, do as you're told. That's what we mean by authoritarian. Yep. When there is authority that is based upon skills and knowledge. Merit. I'm a plumber. I can fix your plumbing. I'm an authority on plumbing. That is authoritative. the, the two words actually used to mean the same but authoritative has moved over.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Period. But if we thought about having, you know, respecting leaders who are authorities, then there would be authorities on government. There would be authorities on diplomacy. There would be authorities on doing the right thing scientifically. And we that's, for me, one of the dreadful shifts this idea that scientists are not to be trusted because, I don't know, they don't belong to QAnon or. Oh, God, tell me about it. What have you. That, that, that is an astonishingly stupid, you know. And yes, I understand that scientists have made terrible mistakes. And I will here make a differentiation between hard science and soft science. So. Mm. What a sociologist or a psychologist tells us, it's soft science. It, it has some basis, but the meaning may change drastically. It may not be that every child between the age of one and one and a half develops uh, an incestuous fixation upon one of their parents an Oedipus or complex. That may not be true, but there was never any scientific evidence to say that it was true. Um, Then you get over into hard science, and when you get into medicine and epidemiology and virology, you're not dealing with guesses. You're dealing with hard numbers. And looking at what's been recommended that those places like South Korea and New Zealand that have immediately taken the advice. We found out that we have four medical authorities in our SAGE committee, what a good name that is, uh, three of whom weren't qualified for the position and the fourth of whom were sacked. So we blundered into a massive death toll because of, you know, for example, it was decided there wouldn't be enough hospital beds. Brilliant solution. Move all of the old people out of the hospitals into care homes. Oh, 15,000 people moved, 13,000 deaths in the care homes. Every care home was infected. Because they didn't bother to test these people before moving them. So you get just stupidity of the worst kind. Right. We do need to have leaders, but there is a problem. There's a conservative, right-wing conservative politician here called Lord Hailsham. He was a a lawyer. His name was Quentin Hogg before he became, which is a great name, before he became Lord Hailsham. So he's a right-wing politician. And he said, our system is not one of democracy. It is one of elective dictatorship. And we all need to keep that in mind that if you then look at, say, V-Taiwan, virtual Taiwan, the project there, to get people involved in making decisions at governmental level. The example is that there was a kind of 50-50 split, as there seems to be over everything these days, over whether they should permit electric scooters. And so rather than just saying yes, no, they started a conversation online and eventually um, a supermajority, two thirds, was reached to say as long as they wear helmets, as long as they keep below a certain speed, it's okay. Now, it's a small issue, but there are so many issues that could be discussed, that we could be involved with, rather than it being dictated to us that because you know, somebody paid this politician this right. much money because was their funds. Right. You know, there's a long way to go, but it, the, the problem is we shouldn't be authoritarians, even if we have to follow leaders, we should make sure that they do what they're meant to do. And we should forever be urgent. I mean, we've just had a situation here where our school results have come out. They've had to estimate them. And last week it happened in Scotland that the government had downgraded the estimates teachers had submitted for these vital examinations. Today, we got the ones here and we find that 39% at least of the results reported by teachers were downgraded using an algorithm. And so you've got it, and you know, in, in his conversation about it, Boris Johnson used the word robust four times that I counted about the decisions that have been made by this algorithm about these kids. And you find that kids who've been to expensive private schools have done really well in the exams, whereas the kids who've got we have to have equality. We have to have fairness. We have to get rid of corruption. Yes, we do. We have, to have accountability in government, which would be my final point. But if somebody in government is found to have committed some horrible offense, say somebody like, I don't know, Richard Milhouse Nixon, he's a good example. You shouldn't be allowed to appoint a successor who's going to pardon him. He should do his time. That's right. You know, for the crimes he committed. That's right. And he was a despite his statements otherwise. Yeah, I know. And there should probably be a review at the end of every government, certainly for every president, to say, did you do what you promised? Did you act ethically? And and to hold people to account rather than just calling them Mr. President for the rest of their lives. Oh, I tell and- you,
0: the idea <laughs> that the president, that the IGs, the inspector generals of the various departments and the, of the executive branch, can be fired by the president? Defeats the entire purpose of having an IG. I mean, yeah. why, why would you, why would you even bother to pretend if the pres- if they serve at the pleasure of the says- president and they're supposed to be monitoring the president or some function under the president, then they should have complete immunity from being fired by that guy. That's how that's how checks and
1: balances are put together. Absolutely.
0: I just, I just want to, you we know, you also just-
1: get rid of the electoral college's system while we're about it. <laughs> oh God thinking primitive ideas but yeah yeah um,
0: fat chance of that that happening
1: the thing is as you say that and i'm in the same situation as you we're having a conversation i you know i'm 65 years old now and it amazes me that i talk to people who are authorities on subjects who are saying the same things that they were saying to me 20 years ago my opinion seems to change you know, gently and gradually, I'm always finding out something that yep. modifies what think, and that's the encouragement I would give to other people. Yep. Keep thinking, you know, keep, and, and and there's no need to hold on to ideas. It's not dangerous to challenge an exactly. idea. Exactly.
0: It sh- it sh- changing your mind should be the easiest thing in the world to do. You're moving neurons around. It's nothing. I mean, it's really, it is no big deal. I I, I almost
1: your socks for example. Well,
0: I almost take it as axiomatic in critical thinking that if you're not changing your mind like dramatically on a weekly basis over over issues or subjects or things you're thinking or talking about, I don't know that you're doing your job as a critical thinker because I tell you I have you know, and this comes right out of John Stuart Mill, who I'm just going to keep going back to because the man's, you know, the, the, the OG on this.
1: He said a wife is a slave.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he also, as you know, you know, uh, validated his wife enormously in what, 1850 or something about how he could not have done any of his work without her.
1: 1859.
0: Yeah, exactly. A lot of things happened between 1859 and 1879. I found those very seminal years in a number of ways. Evolution, psychiatry, a lot of stuff. Uh, Lewis
1: Carroll's Alice in Wonderland.
0: Yeah, exactly. A lot of stuff. Uh, Dracula, I think, came out of that time period. All right. Anyway, Sherlock Holmes. Um, What I wanted to point, what I wanted to say, and sort of ending off with this was... um, I love being presented with a question that really rocks me, that really changes my, my universe, right? It really rocks my, my head and how I'm thinking about things. And let me tell you one that was put out this morning on Twitter, of all places. Um, somebody put up a website or a, or a poll or something, and it was, um, who do you want to be president? That's it. That was the question rocked my world because I suddenly realized it's the same, same way as when somebody invited me, a TV show where you invited me to actually consider what it would be like to live forever. Like really think about it. What would it really look like? You know, and once you actually look hard at something like that, you suddenly all the airy fairy, oh, I wish I was immortal, just goes, you realize the torture it would be, you know? So on this, I realize who, who 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 do I who do I know of that I would want to be president <laughs>
1: Wait, know, of the wife, United States? Life, obviously, Chris. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, of course, of course, Melissa. All
1: the great free lunches you'd get.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, I think it should probably be seven. Seven, the Wonder Cat. He's our our cat. I think he should. There you go. There you go. But it's it, and it's just one of those questions where once somebody poses it to you, you just go, hey, wait a second. Cause for me, I mean, you ask me a question like that, and you ask it seriously, and I'm gonna start thinking about it. And it's gonna be, well, wait a minute, what are the qualifications for this office? Who should be? What profession should they come from? Where should I be looking to find an ideal president of the United States anyway? Should I be looking amongst this politician class or should be, is there some other class of people I should be looking at? Just the questions get your head going in ways that you're just like, oh my God, this is, I really, we should really be thinking about this a lot more. I wish somebody asked me that question in civics class, you know? Like, instead of, okay, here's the system, here are the parameters around which you can think about this problem. There are no other parameters that apply. This is the box, here's how it works. Rather than that, I mean, yes, show me the box, tell me how it works, but don't tell me this is the only way it can be. Maybe there's another way of looking at this or reframing this or turning this box upside down that might end up with something amazing and Wouldn't that be cool? So that's why I love questions like that and, and, and conversations like this. So, so thank One you for engaging with me about all this.
1: One of the things that perplexes me and, and it, it keeps coming back to me is the life and times of Winston Churchill. Hmm. This really astonishing man is very, very definitely could be classified as a psychopath. There are no two ways about it. He was engaged in some dreadful, awful things The first um, bombing of civilians by the British Air Force. 1922, Iraq, the Marsh Arabs, the very population that Saddam Hussein was executed for having used chemical weapons against. Churchill wanted to spray them with chlorine gas, but feared that it would spray back on the pilots. Um, The murder of people in the Irish Republican Army. Um, A variety of campaigns that didn't do too well. Antwerp was the first, which people don't talk about, in 1914. But then Gallipoli, which we all pretty much know about. And it was the right idea. He was trying to get round the back so there wouldn't be trench warfare. Um, he then, of course, volunteers to become a frontline officer during the rest of the First World War. He's the government ministry says, I failed you, and he goes and serves on the front line. He's involved in all sorts of things, uh, Arnhem, Dieppe, the Greek landings, which really go very badly wrong. Um, he probably made, for me, the greatest mistake of any British politician, and that was after Dunkirk. During Dunkirk, um, as the movie with Gary Oldman, their, their finest hour, has it, he, Hitler seeks to negotiate with them and holds off the panzers so that, in fact, the majority of the 340,000 members of the British Expeditionary Force get home. Um, I'm afraid that... Um, Goering wasn't as kind and strafed them from the air, but never mind. But he was offered a peace deal then by Hitler, and he said that it was, it'd be foolish to negotiate when your head is in the mouth of the lion, which is true. What most people don't know is that after Dunkirk, Hitler offered to walk away, and Churchill went no. And if at that point Churchill said, good, we will now build up our military forces for a year or two while you go and spend yours against Russia. Well, let's face it, we'd still be ruling the world. Um, So this man, who was tremendously pro-British, though half American, let's admit, actually squandered all of the colonies, all of the gold reserves to preserve Europe and to set up a state of Europe. The European Convention on Human Rights was written by Winston Churchill. For, you get all of these contradictions in this guy who is regarded as a Pole in 1999, where he was regarded as the greatest Briton ever. I mean, Freddie Mercury came in at number 58 and he wasn't even British, but you know, <laughs> let's not worry about that. Bless him. He deserved it. He was the champion, after all, um, of the whole world. But that's one of the, you know, if you're talking about politics and who makes a great political leader, the idea that. You know, Churchill used to, during the Blitz, he'd go up on rooftops so he could watch the bombers. <laughs> and people would go, look, Winnie, if, if you get done, we're in real trouble. Yeah, yes, but I loved watching them, you know. He he had that risk-taking element that is part of being a psychopath, and yet he also had a fervent devotion to England, to Britain, to, you know, And then you wind back just one more point about him. He was part of the Liberal government that in 1912 brought in the People's Act, which allowed that members of Parliament could be paid, which meant they didn't have to have a trade union behind them or a rich family to to be there, which is pretty good, but also brought in national insurance, whereby if you lost your job, you'd have six weeks full pay afterwards. He was part of a liberalising movement, and then all of these other things. So... And I don't know what to think. I I have read a sort of 800-page biography of him, which left out a lot of the information I've just given you because Hmm. there is so much information about him. So that's the next question, which is who would make the best president and what kind of morality should they have? Is it their, you know, he was incredibly articulate. He's one of the best, greatest writers in the English language, I believe. You know, even though I don't particularly like the man, his history of the English-speaking people, and those wonderful speeches, you know, we will fight them on the beaches. <laughs> and all that stuff. That's right. Um, never was so much done by so few for so many.
0: Yeah. Using no, so many he, he, he was quite good with the words sometimes. <laughs> I it, it really gets you thinking. I guess that's the thing. It gets you thinking, because you could look at, if you start reframing the the, the, the office of POTUS, the President of the United States, in Different terms, or you start looking at it differently, or you start thinking about well, what if we started regarding this as as an as an equal position to the Congress rather than this sort of king dictator position that it seems to have that the people have created, really, as well as the politicians. This is yes. not a this is not a they did this to us kind of thing over here. We, Government
1: of the people, by the president, for the people. Yeah,
0: exactly. We've we we have. You know the the founding fathers talked about this, which is why we know this that they that they did not want a monarch a monarchy and hei- you know they did not want that again. They knew what that looked like, and of all the things they didn't want, they didn't
1: want that. And then George Washington said, <laughs> "Nobody can sit down until I've sat down." And yeah, exactly, was- and then
0: you get but you get the contradictions exactly. Just like with Churchill, you get this, but then you get this, and you go, "Oh, it's complicated." You know, all men are created equal, but they're slaveholders. And you're like, well, what the hell am I supposed to think about this? Well, it really depends basically on what you want to think about it. Because I I look at that and I go, it was complicated. It was a different time. The values were different. Cultures evolve. I mean, that's how I look at it. But not everybody looks at it that way. A whole bunch of people look at that and go, bad man. And I go, okay, well, guess how many millions of other bad men he joins in history who had something to do with slavery, right? This man, this bad man, also happened to write one of the most influential documents in human history. So what do you do with that? You know, and you kind of go, well, I look at it.
1: What's that? You're talking about Jefferson now, not Washington.
0: Yeah, I'm talking about Jefferson there. Right. I was I was referring to him for our our English audience. here. Yes, 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 yes. So (laughs) so you have complicated people, smart people, nuanced people, people with a whole different value set who grew up in a whole different world than we're growing up in. And this is where I think really at the end of the day, our moral judgments of people in history are really just so much hot air because. You're not walking in their shoes in their world. You're walking in this one. And this one is built on their shoulders. So, bitch and moan all you want to about how evil they were. But our society has evolved in an Enlightenment age because of those people. Good and bad.
1: And... Perhaps also in spite of those people. That too. I mean,
0: that too. The other thing
1: you should say about Jefferson is he was not only a slave owner, and there is never any justification for that, whatever the culture is, I'm afraid. Um, and he also advocated the complete extermination of the Native American population.
0: Yeah, so I get that. You know, I get that. I, I'm
1: not sure that I, you know, I think we can judge from where we are, Uh, We don't have to stand on people's shoulders, by the way, because that'd be painful for them. Um, (laughs) I think we can judge by our value systems, but only once we've understood theirs. And I would still say that the importation of 20 million Africans and all of those who participated in that trade, including all of the Africans who captured them and sold them, all of the people who participated in that, that trade will go to hell. And that's ah. very simple. That, you know? <laughs> in terms of moral judgment, what they did was odious to to an extreme, and that George Washington then had slaves' teeth. You know, I mean, come on, guys, they weren't wooden. Yeah,
0: they I, were. get I, I get it. I get it. And I'm not sitting here, you know, defending that either. You know, no. I'm just pointing out that um, that was then. This is now, and. Um, Anyway, it's another nuanced conversation, I suppose.
1: Yeah, we we wouldn't have Vietnamese restaurants if it hadn't been for the war. So, (laughs) no, it's not all bad. Exactly. Every every silver lining has a dark cloud. You know.
0: Well, it's it's a matter of um, I don't know.
1: (laughs) It's a matter
0: of recognizing that there's no such thing as all good and all bad.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't really work that way. Let's, you know, we haven't even talked about the man. Let's give him a plug. Goodness and badness, beautifulness and (laughs) goodness are alike considerations and have no other basis than opinion. I don't agree with that. I don't
0: agree with that either.
1: I I do accept the Taoist view, which is that we have yin and yang. And whether something is good or bad is very much a value judgment. I think with slavery, I'm it's bad. <laughs>
0: well, I certainly agree that it's bad now. Yeah. I, it, was I, bad uh, then. it was
1: a lot worse then. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I cast my mind back to the world as it used to be versus how it is now, you know, because far too many people, and certainly this is true in our infotainment, um, project our current world into a past you know, as though they had, you know, some concept of women's liberation, for example, or they had some concept of, you know, a life that where a, a world where slaves didn't exist. I mean, there are whole zones of this planet where it was inconceivable for hundreds, thousands of years that society could exist without slaves. So yeah. it's it, a, the
1: practice it, is reintroduced by Christopher Columbus under a, a papal mm-hmm. edict having died out uh, in Europe with the feudal system, with the exception, of course, of Russia, which only liberated its serfs a couple of years before um, the proclamation of emancipation.
0: Yeah, exactly. And And one wonders, even with the feudal system and the... um, and the rise of of indentured servitude and that sort of thing, not the same. I'm not I'm not making a false equivalency here, but I am saying that in terms of degraded working conditions, not being paid what you're worth, being put under a labor contract, that was, for all intents and purposes, a slave contract for a period of time. That's how a lot of people got over here who weren't black. and um, And that I'm happened sure. too, right? and we're not and it's not it's not the same i'm not saying it's the same i'm saying that even where slave manacles or collars or whatever in the slave trade might have petered off you still had enforced servitude and and labor and we this still is, have now and we still minutes. do now exactly and people you know and and this is and this this nuance i mean you know b- people talk very high mindedly about um, and they should about, you know, well, who couldn't, you know, the concentration camps in World War II in Germany, like everybody knew. How come nobody did anything? Right, right. Well, how many people you see going over and, and dealing with the, with the Jaeger, the uh, Jaeger-Yugar, the, the, um, the, the Chinese uh, Muslim concentration camps that they're running right it, now? Xinjiang. Yeah. So those, that's it's happening right now with ethnic minorities in China. What, is there, what are we doing about it? Well, we're sanctioning them. You know, okay, good. That's better than nothing. But are we really handling that? Like, if you really want to ask yourself deep, pointed, tough, ethical questions, like what would you have done then?
1: Well, what are you doing now? You oh, know? Yes. And, and this That's on the money. That's yeah. on the money. What so are the, we doing now? Exactly. And the other thing about that is don't try and do too many things exactly. you know? I've I mean, been in that situation if you're going to take on you know 40,000 people with a billion dollars focus on that no. exactly. <laughs> don't try and but, but you know and talk about it I mean the Stetson effect just the thing of complaining just the thing of saying I don't approve of that so you know w- we have a situation of apartheid in various parts of the world obviously what's happening to the Uyghur and Xinjiang is apartheid they are a, a sub people What's happening to the Palestinians in Israel is apartheid. What's happening to women in many parts of the world is gender apartheid. This is stuff. And what do we do about it? Well, with South Africa, I didn't buy any of their stuff for 30 years, you know. And with China, I try and buy as little as possible, but it's almost impossible these days to do that and to encourage people out here to be making their own stuff and you know, growing their own vegetables and, and doing anything and everything that can release us from the shackles and chains that now link us to economies like Brazil, India, China, which are utterly unfair societies that's where right. human rights are just trampled on.
0: That's right. So, so, that's, I, so anyway, if you hear any little bit of, uh, you know, snarkiness in my voice, it's just my sort of, you know... Raging against it's my the hip.
1: Soul responding. <laughs> it's,
0: it's just my uh, r- 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 annoyance over hypocrisy, the the moral hypocrisy that occurs in Western countries over this stuff. When the hijab is a symbol of of women's liberation in America, I can't. I, I mean, you just can't. You can't. The 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 the. the, the, the my eyes can't roll back in my head far enough. I mean, I just, I I really hate this
1: stuff, you know? Well, what about the French where they've banned face coverings and now they've ordered people to wear masks? I mean, how do you make sense of anything? (laughs) I know,
0: I know, it's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, You know, global pandemic context, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, anyway. Good, yeah. t- good times. We can Obviously, there are enough um, you know, moral failings and moral pitfalls for us to talk about all day long. I just wanted to sort of uh, compare and contrast a little bit, like I said, about the authoritarian governments and some of the actions they take versus the perception of what they're doing. And, and I thought we were kind of, you know, we were, we were a bit all over the place here, but I think it was a decent talk and I'm glad that we had it. So I want to thank you for taking the time to be part of me on this with this. Yep,
1: it's been a great pleasure, Chris.
0: Awesome, man. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up because we could just keep going for another three hours, I am sure. But um, folks out there, I hope you found this interesting. You know, again, this is filed under food for thought. This is not me telling you what to think or John, you know, necessarily doing that. This is us actually having the kind of conversations we'd have whether we were on camera or not because this is the kind of stuff we sit around talking about and, and thinking about, you know, and trying to figure out um, not coming to the medium with all the answers prepared, but more of, hey, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about this and and this is some of where it's going on in my head about it. And I'm not really sure what to think. And mm-hmm. if you came away with this whole conversation with that in mind as to what we've been doing here, then, then you've been on the money. So mm-hmm. thanks for coming around and listening, folks. And I will see you next week. Uh, and bye-bye.
1: You're right.